0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. This is your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service, and advisor at InsightFinder, the system of intelligence for IT operations. Thank you for turning this passion project into one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app, We read all of your feedback and it means so much to us. We've been discussing the ethics of AI recently and more broadly, the future of software development. Krishna Gade from Fiddler discussed how to productize AI explainability. Jeff Meyerson, that rabble rouser, (laughs) discussed the new developer tool set and charity majors discussed how better instrumentation makes it easier to develop high quality apps. The recurring theme is that Humans are responsible for decisions made by machines and also for the quality of their end products. No amount of copilot, human-machine pair programming could possibly replace human creativity and intuition. Well, today's guest is no stranger to managing complex AI models at scale. Bundu Reddy is the CEO and founder of Abacus AI having previously founded Post Intelligence, which was acquired by Uber, and spending time both at Google and at Amazon. Bindu and her team are building a platform to manage the lifecycle of AI models from your data pipeline to the tuning of hyperparameters, all the way to detecting drift in AI data to know when to retrain a model. These are hard problems to solve. And the team has not shied away from the core AI research that could eventually lead us to artificial general intelligence, or AGI. Bindu's backed by a world-class set of investors that uh, reads like wall plaques in the VC Hall of Fame. Check out this list. It includes Mike Volpe, Ram Sriram, Eric Schmidt, Jerry Yang, Elad Gill, Deep Nishar, and others. An absolutely incredible list, a testament to, uh, to Bindu. I've been looking forward to this discussion for a while. Uh, We all should be rooting for Bindu and Abacus AI to succeed. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Bindu to the show. Bindu, why don't you start off by sharing a little bit about your background and uh, how you got into this space?
1: Sure. Hi, Dan, and hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So, yeah, a little bit about myself. I started uh, kind of getting really excited about uh, machine learning. I would say just after my tenure at Google. So to give people some context, uh, over a decade ago, uh, I w- uh, you know I basically started at Google as a product manager. I was in charge of product managing a, a section of AdWords, which is Google's main advertising system, and uh, I was kind of very in- intrigued as to how Google was making. Uh, a lot of money, uh, and obviously, uh, they've made a a ton, as we all know, uh, especially through search advertising, how it was making a ton of money uh, by actually ranking different ads based on different queries, uh, that uh, a section that I was very curious about was called uh, uh, ads quality. And so uh, the engineers there basically used to uh, work on machine learning and statistical models to rank different ads. And honestly speaking, when I was there, I was a little annoyed because machine learning seemed very... Um, opaque. Uh, people, uh, we, we would have advertisers calling us wondering why a particular ad was ranked where it was. We didn't have good answers as product managers. So I was actually kind of like um, not that thrilled uh, with machine learning as a, a space or as an area in general. I moved off of machine learning at Google, went on to become the head of Google uh, uh, Apps at that time, the G Suite as it is not now called, or the Google Workspace as it's now called, used to be called Google Apps. That's a set of Google Apps that a lot of people are probably familiar with. Things like Google Docs, spreadsheets, and slides. I uh, had a really um, wonderful time working on these, uh, you know, prosumer apps. Uh, you know, working with uh, various different teams there, and then came to a realization at some point that while Google was great, uh, like my true calling was to be an entrepreneur to start a company. So we started this company, uh, which was kind of focused on social media advertising. Uh, it was called my Likes in the beginning, then uh, kind of got um, rebranded to Post Intelligence. That was the startup you just talked about. And at Post Intelligence, uh, our job was basically to actually optimize content for influencers to post on social media. And again, I guess what showed up in the picture, machine learning, of course. Uh, initially, we kind of dipped our toes into the water and started using some basic ML algorithms for um, uh, looking at uh, ranking social media content, uh, very similar to some of the stuff that Google had done. Uh, And then we also uh, started kind of like uh, pushing the content which we thought would actually engage or get engagement in social media to our social media influencers. And while we were iterating in this process, uh, about, I would say six months into that process, we had one of our um, top uh, ML engineers at that time create an algorithm which actually gave us an increase of 40% our overall revenue that literally changed the face of that startup uh we went uh, we went into kind of an inflection growth point and that's when i became a true machine learning ai believer that's when i spent my time i took time to like figure it out understand more of it and then since then i've been uh, you know um completely obsessed with ai <laughs> as people who pro- probably follow me on twitter already know uh and and um As part of that startup, we did a whole bunch of uh, stuff around NLP and NLU as well. Uh, At some point, long story, uh, we decided to sell that uh, startup to Uber and when we did, Uh, I had the choice of actually kind of staying on at Uber uh, or like actually going to AWS for this very wonderful role of heading uh, AI verticals uh, as part of uh, AWS AI. So I was in charge of creating new AWS verticals for specific applied AI domains and uses. And that really kind of like grabbed my imagination because uh, uh, until then, um, I I always uh, have felt, and one of the reasons actually we even exited to Uber was that we felt that big companies Especially big tech companies are in this um, undeniably dominant position because of the rise of AI. They have lots of data, they have lots of talent, they have a lot of uh, technology, and that combination has basically kind of made the FANG or the FAGMA companies what they are today. And uh, I got and I was super excited about bringing that technology to kind of organizations of all sizes. So my role in AWS was perfect for me. Uh, I think I had a blast there, or rather, I had a blast there uh, with, um, and our teams basically created as of now four new services Amazon personalized forecast, lookout, and fraud detector. Each of them uh, have been, I think, very well used. Uh, I personally, after two years, uh, you know, the startup bug has always been in me, and uh, I really. Wanted to, wanted to go back to like being an entrepreneur again. I was also excited to be in the AI space and. Uh abacus was kind of uh, uh, the the, was this idea or the vision behind abacus was uh, bringing ai literally uh, not just to every organization as aws actually continues to do but also making it possible for non-data scientists to use it and also like helping like large companies go to market with the iml quickly Uh, i i strongly believe that we're yet to reach an inflection point on that side where like people can just kind of think about Creating AI models very much like thinking about creating podcasts or websites. You know, if AI, if building AI models became that easy, uh, then I think we are going to see a very different world. And I I would love for Abacus to be at least a small part of making that happen.
0: I love how you describe that AI moment of inspiration. I think we've all experienced that in the space. To make it very real for our listeners, describe a customer of Abacus AI that you're proud of, maybe one that has inspired you with how they're using the products.
1: Uh, we have several customers. I think one of my favorite customers actually uh, is a small customer. It's a startup. Uh, we have a very very large customers, uh, the people like Flowers, Flextronics, and so on. But uh, I always get excited when startups use AI really quickly uh, and kind of you know, and it's it's kind of world changing for them. Uh, so this one is called Daily Look. What they basically do is they are uh, somewhat similar to Stitch Fix. You can go and uh, uh, basically as uh, uh, choose various uh, different uh, uh fashion uh, uh items on their website. So you can pick things like skirts or blouses or dresses that you would like. And then they will start sending you packages every month uh, to your to uh, to basically make sure that you like some of that stuff. You can keep what you like and you send back what you don't like. So somewhat similar to Stitch Fix. They didn't have any machine learning. They didn't have any data scientists when they started speaking to us, but they had a big business. So they had good cash flow. They were making money. They had a lot of customers who loved some of the stuff that they were like shipping to them, uh, but they had not opt- that business. So when they uh, when they started talking to Abacus, they kind of wanted to build a model which would like basically decide for them which um, which items to ship to a particular customer, uh, so that the keep rate would be very high. So fairly standard model by data science standards, and uh, you know they basically uh, their CTO. Uh, literally gave us some of the data, like tried to use our platform. And in a couple of days, they had a model which seemed like it would work. They actually integrated that model back into their website. And voila, that has been working really, really well for them. Uh, they're like uh, their retention rate has increased quite a bit. People are now keeping more of the items than returning them. And their stylists which who were picking out these fashion items are also being helped a lot by the model where the model gives suggestions on which items to pick to a particular customer based on that customer's preferences. So this is uh, when I see examples like this where things become much more optimal and and user engagement increases and customers become more delighted. uh, That's when I get really happy. And I'm very glad that Daily Look has not only been using us now for over a year and a half, but also they went to market really, really quickly.
0: Great example. Now in the industry, we all benefit from some of the core research I mentioned that uh, your team is doing. Uh, I had the pleasure of attending the, the recent uh, state-of-the-art conference that you hosted, and I heard about some of the amazing things that the team is doing. I sat in on a, a session led by Colin, one of your team members. Um, it would be great to have our listeners understand how you split the focus on productizing the research, but also doing the underlying research. What are, what are some of the things that are uh, are being incubated in your labs that you're most excited about?
1: Absolutely. So I think the thing that really uh, is our kind of like uh, flagship research uh, uh, focus area is uh, this thing called neural architecture search. It's a pretty large field. And and, uh, at a high level, I I would basically describe it as AI building AI. So the holy grail, if you think about it, and this holy grail is quite far off right now is uh, if we could like basically give an expert ai system all the data that we have define a particular kind of use case or a task uh, as the case may be and then for that uh, expert ai system to take all of that data transform it pro- uh, process it and then build a model for it with with that use case or task uh, in mind right So basically let AI build the whole AI system. You don't really have to go off and do a lot of manual steps. Uh, I, I believe that we will get there or we will get mostly there, over the next decade or so. And that's kind of the overall area of research that we're focused on. Specifically in uh, in that kind of big area, I would say there is a sub area called neural architecture search, which is basically figuring out which neural net uh, is the best uh, neural net architecture, given a particular problem and given a particular data set. So obviously uh, these models will be different or these neural nets will be different uh, based on the shape of your data, the size of your data. And of course, uh, the. Intent behind what you're trying to achieve with that model. And the more you can actually build out a neural net, which is robust to kind of like noise in the data, to missing values in the data, uh, the better uh, it is for, uh, um, you know, the better it is for everyone because you could potentially start creating those AI models at, uh, uh, you know, uh, at an exponential speed in a way. So that is the area that we focus on quite a bit. Uh, We've actually, Published over six or seven new RIPS, ICML, and ICLR papers. Uh, so we want to push the envelope there. We also, can, uh, you know, uh, collaborate with one of the top uh, researchers in the area, Frank Hutter. Uh, and uh, in terms of actually uh, incorporating that research into our product, the approach that we've taken ha- tends to be pretty practical and pretty uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, biased towards uh, action in some ways. So a lot of research can't actually get incorporated immediately into product, some of it can. So we basically when when we're doing research, we're constantly kind of thinking about which, which aspect of this can get into our product and when and if we can do that, we'll get it done. Having said that, we still will do a considerable amount of research and I would say that's more than 50% of research where we're basically doing that research just for building the foundational aspects of that area and actually kind of pushing that, uh, you know, pushing the state of the art in that area a little more. So that, that's kind of been our research focus. The good news is for the next year, we're actually going to be ramping up our research team quite a bit. Uh, we would like to be one of the top labs in the world, commercial labs. I don't think that we're going to be able to like, uh, compete with the likes of MIT and Stanford. But I do think uh, we, w- we want to be just behind, say, some of the very large big tech firms like Google Brain or Facebook and IBM. And I think we'll get there. So we're very excited for that whole area of uh, uh, you know, focus in the company.
0: This goes against traditional startup wisdom, which is uh, pick a problem, focus on a solution to that problem. And in the world of AI, that often means using off-the-shelf approaches, open source frameworks. How, as a CEO, do you rationalize the investment in core research that, you know, to, your, to your own admission, is sometimes hard to monetize?
1: This is a good point. I think, as you said, uh, you know, uh, most people, most startups actually don't really uh, indulge in research, if the word of choice is indulge. My point of view is very different uh, from uh, the standard, kind of I would say, uh, the startup of today, Uh, you know, to me, Silicon Valley has always been about innovation. It's always been about kind of pushing the boundaries. Uh, Over time, unfortunately, I have to say Silicon Valley has become a little bit more about business than it is about innovation. Don't get me wrong. I understand that you need to build, uh, you know, uh, good businesses uh, for startups to succeed and inherently that's the mission. Uh, But having said that, uh, you know, building kind of like a new restaurant and like getting that into uh, you know a profitable cash flow uh, situation is still uh, you know is still being an entrepreneur is still be uh, doing a startup. But the value has always been to me, at least, about it is about technology and it's about innovation. And today, that technology and innovation at its in its core kind of uh, uh, sense uh, exists uh, within the AI com- community. And if I have to attract people who are willing to kind of like do hard things, go where no one has gone before, invent new mm-hmm. Things, I have to like kind of attract scientists who really do want to publish they just don't want to innovate, they just don't want to kind of like, you know, make things happen inside of a company. They also want to talk about their work. They want to contribute back to the community. They want to share their ideas with the community, which, by the way, I wholeheartedly kind of agree with. And that is why the focus on the research. So my opinion, in the long run, this research thing is going to pay off big time. Uh, And also um, uh, it's it kind of brings back, I think, to a little extent to the valley the idea of like trying to work on Hard things and uh, you know innovating and kind of uh, and and kind of like inventing things which big tech even uh, may not invent in the in the short term. If you think 20 years ago, uh, one of the reasons uh, Google came into uh, became Google was that they actually went and uh, you know figured something out when it comes to search technology. And initially, Google's business model was actually to just license the technology to portals like Yahoo or uh, you know Microsoft and so on. I think this research uh, bug for me is kind of uh, wanting this desire to bring back that old value to some extent.
0: We talk a lot about mitigating the impact of biased data, specifically in trained or supervised uh, ML models. And you sent a provocative tweet out. I think it was was in the last day or so. I wanted to read it for our audience and then uh, have you unpack it bias is a shortcut both for our brains and for machine learning models without any biases we wouldn't learn anything from existing observations too much bias and we're not learning anything new Uh, that's contrarian Uh, explain (laughs) what you meant in that we we wouldn't learn anything new if we didn't have biased uh, bias built into our decision process
1: (laughs) <laughs> well okay so uh you know really uh when i mean bias there if you look at uh, if you look at the kind of standard definition of bias all machine learning models are just nothing more than um trade-off between uh, variance and bias so what that means is basically learning a pattern right if you're when, for example let me uh, you know give you an example of uh, uh, this that commonly happens uh, with the human brain uh, so Typically, when I'm, you know, when I'm actually walking down the road, I'm not thinking much because I know that there is a road and I know that my you know, foot is going to like, hit the road and not kind of die, uh, and, not, and I'm not going to fall off into some big hole or what have you. It's because uh, I know I've learned that pattern. I know what to expect. And, uh, I, and I'm going to just make uh, quick decisions. So that's the shortcut, right? I mean, typically, one of the reasons stereotypes exist in this world is because the brain is making too many shortcuts. Because, in some ways, some stereotypes make sense, right? In the sense that if you uh are uh, you know, if you find, if you, if you see a, a ball of fire hurling at you, your brain has to make a decision that is a ball of fire that is hurling at you. And you have to get out of the way really quickly. That decision has to happen in a few micros, I mean, very, very quickly. And your brain does that in a lot of cases, even as you're operating daily, there are lots and lots of decisions your brain is making, which are made because of these shortcuts or assumptions or patterns in the data. Let's put it that way. That's kind of what the machine learning model learns too. If it looks at a lot of data, it learns all kinds of patterns. So there are lots. So by definition, an ML model is learning the biases in the data. A lot of these biases are real kinds of biases or kind of slants, as you may call it. Let's let's take a lead scoring model. For example, um, you know, lead scoring model, one of the big uh, patterns could be the source. Which channel did you get the lead from? The ML model learns that the lead scoring model, the value in the lead scoring model biases the prediction. That's great. That's a great, uh, you know, we want we want you to learn that. But then there are, um, but today in common parlance, bias is also used as a term uh, for denoting only negative slash wrong bias, meaning bias which should not be there, where where it does not reflect reality. Uh, And so when you over bias, over see patterns, so for example, when I assume like, uh, you know, all Indian women should have had arranged marriages, (laughs) that's a stereotype, that's a negative bias. could be that the data shows that 80% of Indian women have had arranged marriages, but that doesn't mean that 100% are, right? And what we are as a society doing is trying to fight that bias where, it is, where it's over biasing towards a particular um, standard um, kind of value. And, uh, and that's where I was basically saying, look, if you over bias, you're not going to learn that there will be some Indian women who may not have had an arranged marriage. And that was the point behind the tweet. And of course, it was slightly well, provocative and controversial because, hey, that's what works on Twitter.
0: <laughs> you figured out the formula for uh, for, for pro- provocative tweets. I like it. I, I know that uh, we're going to run into your hard stop. You've got uh, you got customer commitments, which is which is uh, to be expected from a busy CEO. But I, I've got to make sure I get one last question in for you. I'll, uh, I want to learn a little bit more about your. Your entrepreneurial journey? What, what has surprised you most? And then, maybe specifically, you've been at transcending cultures at Google, at Amazon, and the AWS AI side. Uh, what are the lessons that you've, that, that, that you've had to unlearn from being parts of those organizations? And then, what have, what have you taken into Abacus AI and incorporated into the culture there?
1: Ah, very good question. Uh, I uh, have had the privilege and honor of working in in two iconic companies. Uh, These companies uh, have, uh, have cultures even today which are very very admirable and which i believe there's a lot to be learned from the culture more than anything if you ask me what did i get out of google or what did i get out of amazon i would say the culture of the company now clearly though a lot of times big company folks don't work out in small companies i mean this is <clears throat> and this is uh, again a stereotype of sorts but uh, Uh, You know, uh, the main reason for that is uh, when you're in a big company, you have a lot more resources than when you have in a small company. And you also are working with a a bunch of really, really smart people, especially in companies like Amazon and Google. So you take a lot of things for granted. In a startup, you're basically starting all the way from scratch. You have nothing. You have to hustle. You have to figure things out. And this is also why I don't really blame startups for not going off and doing things like fundamental research. Uh, there's a lot of times when they just don't have that time or energy or even like you know the desire to do it because uh, the main goal of the startup in the beginning is honestly speaking survival uh, and then the next goal off beyond that is to try to you know extraction uh, and so the main thing i've had to unlearn in some ways is uh, kind of this expectation of things to happen in a particular way inside large companies uh, things uh, you know, you take a lot of things for granted, you have a lot of resources, customers treat you very differently. Um, you know, you let, all of that is gone in a startup. But on the uh, plus side, you know, things move really quickly in a startup, you have a lot more control of your, uh, uh, you know, of the uh, uh, destiny of your startup. And uh, you also get to in, just in some ways, uh, work with people that you choose to work with, as opposed to uh, in big companies where you don't have that much of a choice.
0: Well, Bindu, we are all, like I said earlier, rooting for your success. You're doing the hard work. I think you're advancing the field as much as anyone we've talked to. We've done about 100 episodes on this show. And uh, you know c- can't say that I've talked to any CEO that has as bold a vision or is as willing to contribute back to the, the growth of the field. So, so thank you.
1: Oh, that's very nice of you. I hope we have more people, uh, you know, being more bold. And, you know, the boldness does come with uh, an issue, which is that the more ambitious you are, it's probable that you're more likely to fail, but we'll see. Thank you so much for rooting for us. And uh, yeah, um, thanks for having me as well. Bye.
0: Yeah. Hey, Bindu, uh, such a pleasure. We're just getting started. Hopefully we'll have an opportunity to uh, track your progress on a a follow-up episode. How does that sound to you? Sounds great, thank you. All right, best of luck, bye. Well, thanks again to Bindu and the team for doing great work at Abacus AI. This is your host, Dan Turchin, signing off, but uh, back next week with another fascinating guest.